Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Yes, we are in the thick of the playoffs as we are recording this. It is Sunday morning on the, we're on the precipice of the second round, Cody. So by the time a lot of people listen to this, the Warriors and the Celtics-Bucks games will have been concluded, those games won. But from our vantage point, way back here in the past, on Sunday morning, we we have no idea what's coming in the second round. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to talk about some of the stuff that happened in the first round. How are you feeling? I, I thought the first round was fantastic. Oh, so I'm, I'm actually going to answer how are you feeling right now, because yesterday, being the first day when there wasn't a single NBA game on for like a couple of weeks, it was like a nice, I could prepare for this podcast without being like, oh, I need to, to jam in this game. So I'm, I'm relaxed. I'm zen. I feel, I feel great right now, Ben. Fantastic. That's how I feel as well. I use that time to make a video about Rudy Gobert, or as Kendrick Perkins apparently likes to call him without any ramifications, Rudy Gobert. Um <laughs> You you saw that video and you have thoughts, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I'm just I, I I said this last time. I think every time I bring up Gobert, I say this is the last time I'm going to talk about Gobert publicly because I just can't I can't handle it anymore. But I, I don't know. I think this was the the fairest depiction. Not not because I'm working with you that I'm like, oh, you did such a good and fair and unbiased uh, analysis That's of it. Why. But That's why I yeah. paid you to say that. Actually, yeah, exactly. Triple tripled my salary for for today's episode. <laughs> But yeah, it was just, it broke down just how broken the Jazz's uh, perimeter defense was. A lot of some of those, you, you included some really egregious defensive position possessions. And of course, you know, you didn't not tear Gobert apart. There were a couple plays when you're like, look, this guy's scoring on Gobert. He's not perfect, but he's also in a very imperfect situation. So I think with that thesis, it was a very clear and good video. That's it. There's no, you didn't have any questions or... Um pushback or stunning reactions that you set me up right before we recorded you're like I'm really gonna get in I'm really gonna get into you on the Gobert video and now you're throwing me this this softball oh I'm sorry that was actually my my very deadpan midwestern sarcasm <laughs> um I actually agreed with the video quite quite strongly and I know that there were some people that were like well actually the thing about Gobert is like his offense we're not worried about his defense mm. it's his offense that we're worried about and so I would have liked for you to discuss that but my thought when I was watching it, I'm like, this video is already 10 minutes long. Like, if you would have talked about his offense, the video would have been 15, 20 minutes long. And no one really has time for that, if we're going to be honest, unless it's a Greatest Peak series. So I think if you were to talk about the offense, that would be that would be a whole other video. Did you consider including anything with this offense, though? No, because the video really came about um, from hearing a lot of people ask me specifically about Gobert's defense. And that was probably a little bit before the national chatter about it as this because, you know, when they get eliminated, there's always going to be stuff about the jazz and what it looks like. And that's just weird. I don't know why it's been like this. Um, I don't even want to really speculate why, because I think the reasons aren't that fun to talk about. Um, at least they're not that fun from like a, a, a nice perspective. They, they get kind of ugly and toxic. And yeah, it's just weird. Everything around the jazz feels really weird to me. But with that said, it was, I think, a very legitimate question that a lot of people I think very thoughtful and smart, um, think are very thoughtful and smart, kept asking me as the series unwound. So I was really focused on the defensive side. The offensive side for me, as I've said, I think he probably comes out to somewhere around a neutral. There is the component that when teams go small, he can't destroy them individually but Utah has had success offensively against these small lineups it's just 
the defensive lineups or sometimes the bench lineups. You know, one thing we talked about was uh, Mitchell was a positive in the playoffs last year and their offense was fantastic. 126 offensive rating is not a problem. So my mind really never really went to the place of like, I'm going to spend an extra three to five minutes and get into offensive tape because I don't really think the offense is the issue with the Jazz. And when it comes to Gobert, I don't think the issue is offensive really at all when people are asking me about what's happening why are they why are they giving up threes why are they losing why are they getting gutted by small ball uh and on and on and on so yeah that that was where my mind was I think the thing offensively with Gobert too is that some of his his mistakes just stand out as being like really simple how could an NBA player make this kind of mistake like he had a very famous post up I don't remember which game it was but he tried to spin and just kind of like threw the ball out of bounds he kind of had butter hands for a few games I feel like a lot of passes that went to him he bobbled and it caused a turnover and I think there was some compelling evidence of that in the the thinking basketball discord someone was sharing some statistics about turnovers per touch or something like that but I just think that's an entirely different conversation and again like for some reason with the Jazz, like they had a lot of issues going on and, and Gobert just ends up hitting the full the full brunt of all of it. It's like it, it's his problem that their offense wasn't as good as we'd want it to be. And it's his problem that their defense wasn't as good as it wanted to be while there was a lot of other factors included in there. Yeah. And the defensive side, I mentioned this uh, in the last episode where we talked about differences from the regular season to the postseason with Gibson Piper. There's there's this thing that develops psychologically, I feel like, with Gobert where Every time someone scores against the Jazz, they're like, ha, why didn't Gobert stop that? It's like, wait a second. This is the most out of whack, out of balance thing. One, most people who criticize him also say defense isn't as valuable as offense, which is it gets into a very weird place. Uh, and then two, no one thinks this way on offense. It's asymmetrical. You know, no one thinks every time your teammate misses an open three or I mentioned Kendrick Perkins, like if Durant and Westbrook are playing with Kendrick Perkins, no one says it's Durant and Westbrook's fault that Kendrick Perkins can't make threes when they're covered. Um, I mean, they do in the sense that like you're playing a non-spacer or an, uh, someone who's an offensive liability, but they don't really blame those players. What they say is that guy needs more help, but we don't extend the same kind of thought process on defense. Um, and, and yeah, I think that's inconsistent. Yeah, and I think I think it's also interesting because I don't hear the same level of discourse for offensive players that might have been struggling some in the first series. Like, I feel like I feel like if you were to like rank the players, and I don't want to try and go through this right now, but if you were to like take the public discourse and rank the players that got the most flack during that first round, Gobert would be in his own tier, like <laughs> by miles ahead of everyone else. And you know, there's a few other players beneath that, but there are some offensive players that like authored some great regular seasons and really, really did not hold up that end of the bargain during the playoffs. And I just, I don't feel like I hear that as much. Maybe I'm unplugging a little bit more. Maybe I'm just around people that are more negative on Gobert. But I, I feel like thats it's not an equal um, representation of how players perform during the playoffs so far. That's a great point. That's why you're here, to make these points. So I have something to talk about that the people enjoy. Because even, I, I, I love that um, people aren't overly critical at times. I don't want to contribute to this negative. We talked about this a couple weeks, how when the playoffs come around, everything has to be negative, negative, negative. What did everyone do wrong? I have to blame everyone. Uh, and Gobert is a, a great example of that. But Mike Conley, um, bless him, but he's just getting older. 
and it really looks like he has fallen off or just had a bad stretch or something. But when you look at this team, both on offense and defense, he had a really, really tough series. He had a really tough series. He was not the offensive player he was during the heart of the regular season when the Jazz offense was humming, and he had huge problems defensively. And, you, you know, you don't necessarily think of like, hey, grit and grind, Mike Conley, he's going to be a defensive problem. But I thought in game four of that series, when the Jazz probably had their best defensive game and they were a lot more effort and they were really trying to communicate more than they did in previous games, it's like Clarkson, Conley, even Royce O'Neal, none of these guys were doing a very good job at the point of attack. It wasn't, it wasn't like Conley had a good defensive series and he just struggled in game two and then bounced back. He was also part of this problem. And there are much bigger names that we could talk about that, again, I'm kind of relieved that there hasn't been this piling on against them. But one of the themes that you and I both sort of independently observed in the first round was, man, some of these defenses did an incredible job against all-star and all-NBA level competition. Yeah, and I, I, that's interesting because I feel like conversations prior to a couple of years ago is all about like defense really tapers off once we get to the the playoffs like it's all about the offensive firepower defense kind of helps buoy your uh your star players and you can kind of rest on that in the regular season but since I think like it really stood out with the Lakers championship run in 2020 it was like oh when you load up on this strong defensive talent that can actually carry you through the playoffs and we've seen that with with the Bucks last year during their run their their defense was very strong during the playoffs and this year we have multiple high level defensive teams that are uh coming out on fire and i'm thinking that's going to be continuing throughout the playoffs what about the 2019 raptors oh i think that's really interesting because yes the 2019 raptors but i think if you were to ask people like what was it about the 2019 raptors they'd be like oh Kawhi leonard was was blessed with unholy hellfire during that and just became michael jordan on offense surrounded by this great ecosystem yeah 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 i mean but that doesn't make it that doesn't make it accurate is what i'm saying you know the as good as Kawhi leonard at his peak has been, um, one, I was obviously a very vocal minority. Sometimes I felt like I was a minority of one, being like, wait a second, Kawhi Leonard is not peak Michael Jordan. Let's just slow down. <laughs> Two, one of the reasons for that is that when you look at the success of the team and you look at, to use your words, the ecosystem, the way he plugged into the team, he was a good defensive presence on a great defensive team. He was a volume scorer who also does other stuff. He's a very good offensive player on a team that needed that role specifically because they had the supporting parts, both with shooters where you bring in like Danny Green, but also um, elbow passers, spacers. Gasol was an elbow passer. Serge Ibaka can stretch a little bit. And then you got your Kyle Lowry, your secondary parts with Pascal Siakam. That, that is uh, a really good team built around a defense that was, you know, from one perspective, like almost historically good in the postseason. So we have... The 19 Raptors, we have the 20 Lakers. Um, you're going to throw the 21 Bucks in there. I don't think they were as statistically as impressive as the other teams, but they have a they have a track record of you know really strong defense over the last few seasons. This is a trend to keep an eye on. We'll we'll put a pin in this. We'll table it. We'll come back in a couple weeks, right? But this has been an interesting trend post Warriors as the pace and space era has matured. You have to be able to defend to it seems win the title. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm feeling good about the Boston Celtics. But we'll we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that later in the, Wait, you wanna, in the show. You want to drop that and then say we'll talk about it later? Is is this what you want to do? Are we are we going to tease that conversation? Yeah, we're going to tease that. 
Okay. Yeah, because okay. you, you want to talk about Celtics Bucks and a couple of the other second round series. We'll get to that later in the show, right? That was the plan. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I didn't know you were going to do this to me early on in the show, but now now that Zen is gone, now I'm I'm pounding my head on the stanchion before the game. Just you know, <laughs> you're, are you drooling like Kevin Garnett? I'm ready to go. I'm yeah. growling. I'm at center corner. I'm ready to go. If you're not watching this clip on YouTube, Kobe uh, Cody is wearing a, a, a Wisconsin uh, Badgers on jersey on his chest. Um, he probably has a series of Bucks paraphernalia around the desk that he's on. I can't tell. Uh, but that's, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Bucks and Celtics in a second. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Some of these guys in the first round that were kind of victimized by great defense. I didn't. I didn't see all the games in this series. I only saw, I saw some of the last game and I saw some um, analysis on like game three or four. So I don't have a, a perfect feel for everything that happened. But I do know the Heat, from what I saw, um, took away pick and roll. They shrank the floor, talked about this a little bit on Thursday, and just basically had a game plan that took Trey Young out of his classic, I'm going to run spread pick and roll and just pick you apart that we saw in the regular season. And... He had, it's hard to think of star players that have had a bigger drop-off in a one-round situation, one-series situation. Regular season, he was second in my back picks um, box plus minus model in offensive BPM. He went from plus 4.7 to minus 0.8. He was almost he was almost technically the worst player in that box score model in the entire first round in the NBA playoffs. One of the key things they did, besides chip away at his scoring, he's like a 30-point per 75 score on, you know, 59% true shooting-ish in the regular season. That's about plus three. And then relative to the Heat, he was 16 points per 75. His scoring was almost cut in half, which is like around league average, just to put that in perspective. And then minus 9% relative true shooting. And they took away his great playmaking. Um, the statistical number that actually jumps out to me, Cody, is 20% adjusted turnover percentage. That's like the highest I've ever seen from a from a non-big man who rarely gets to touch the ball. So, you know, again, I'm happy that there isn't this piling on of Trey Young. It's just one series. I think a lot of it has to do with Miami. I think a lot of it has to do with that ecosystem around him and not really having great counters so the defense can load up on what he does. But... Man, that's that's an unbelievable kind of um, neutralizing effect on a great offensive player. I think the number that stands out to me is you you referenced the the negative nine percent efficiency. Whereas during the regular season, he was like a plus three, plus three and a half. That's yep. like a twelve, twelve and a half percentage point swing uh, on efficiency. That's that paired with the turnovers, like. When you think about the impact metric, of course he would be down as one of the, the worst players in that series by that metric. Now, here here's the thing, and we kind of touched on this in a, in a texting conversation earlier. And, and my thought when I'm seeing a lot of this is this was across, um, was it four games? Was it five games? This is embarrassing. They stole a game, right? 
I think it was five games. I think it was five games. Yeah. Wow, this is I should know this, but um, it's across five games. It's a very small sample size, but from the what the process of what the Heat were doing, it was very clear that they were doing a great job of of shutting down and taking away what Trey Young wanted to do. But then again, like these results are so shocking, and I hold like personally, I hold Trey Young in very high regard as one of the best offensive players. You do. So I'm like, okay, here's this great process. And that process led to these great results for the Heat. But are those results actually 100% accurate? Like, does this actually depict how good Trey Young is when he's facing a high-level offense, so a high-level defense? So I think that's my biggest takeaway from the first round is, like, how do I separate the exact results statistically of what happens in a, in a series versus the process of what I'm seeing and being like, yep, they're doing a good job of doing X thing? Well, I think that... Having counters, and I talked about this on the last episode, having counters beyond scoring. Because, again, to me, some of the footage I saw in reviewing the tape was I can't get into something and therefore I can't collapse the defense, I can't touch the paint, I can't draw an extra defender, and now I'm losing my playmaking. And and that's a huge thing. And so I don't think we should judge a player in his worst situation. I don't think we should just judge a player in his best situation. I think we have to keep in mind his teammates, and I think we have to keep in mind the defense. But that did show something, I think, that if you have the right guys out there, Trey doesn't necessarily have a third door, a fourth door, a fifth door to walk through. Whereas in my mind, someone like Luca, as you go through a series, we actually talked about this as one of our points of disagreement. I think everyone's wondering at this point, have you, have you seen the light, Cody? Have you seen the light? Have you flipped on your, on your Luka Doncic Trey Young has these six or seven inches between those two humans. Um, has it has it swayed you at all? Okay, so first of all, everybody, Lucas started off slow in the regular season. <laughs> when we had that conversation, I was using the context That's of that true. season beforehand. All right, right now, if you were to be like, okay, Cody, who are you taking in the playoffs offensive system? I'm taking Luca. Like, I I think you're absolutely right. He has a lot more tricks in that bag. But again, this goes back to, like, the degrees, right? How much does Trey Young drop off? And is it really a drop off versus, like, how much more I value what Luka does? Like, does this bring Trey Young, in my mind, back to, like, I don't even, I I don't know who else was lower maybe in my top 10 list. But does this drop bottom of the top 10? Is he still around 7? Does it only drop him down to, like, 5? That's what I'm struggling with right now is I don't know, uh, as a whole, how do I view this offensive player? Okay, so to me, I'm glad we landed here. Because to me, I think that um, over the years, I've developed something that I'm comfortable with, which is you're looking at the playoffs and you're looking at the regular season. And that's your body of evidence The difference is the playoffs are going to give you different looks and different opponents. And so what you see in the playoffs can have a higher weight in your mind, but it's not a default. You don't just go, oh, well, he got into the playoffs and he got smoked by a good defense. Therefore, Trey Young can't succeed against a good defense. That's probably not true, number one. And number two... Because of the seeding, you didn't get to see him play a game where he averaged, you know, a series where he averaged 35 and 15 assists and 65% true shooting against a weak defense to counterbalance that. So I think we we have to keep all that in mind. Like what you see in the regular season still matters. What I'm trying to figure out is what kind of indicator or predictor is it for playing these different kinds of defenses in the postseason? And of course, the other caveat here with him is, you know, 
I don't necessarily know if he had the right teammates to counterbalance a defense as good as Miami's. And I think the other thing, the, the difficulty about analysis is that the only thing you can do is go backwards. Like you can only take the evidence and the, the outcomes of what happened. So with the Heat, for instance, I feel like during the regular season, I had a really difficult time of placing how good Miami's, how good Miami was in general. Even though they were the number one seed in the East, there was just, I don't know, Spolster's great with whatever players you throw out there. They had a bunch of injuries, things like that. And then they start off this strong in the first round. Okay, so on one hand, I can be like, okay, Trey Young's not a playoff performer. Trey Young is clearly uh, a player that that can't perform when he goes against much stronger defenses. But now I want to see Miami continue through the playoffs. Like, is this going to continue as they scheme for, say, James Harden this next round? And then the series after that, if if Miami makes it to the conference finals, will the same indicators continue showing for those players? And then if we just see that Miami, like, for, for the sake of any kind of argument, Miami buzzes through the playoffs, they win the championship, and it's like, oh my god, this is one of the greatest playoff defenses we've ever seen. Then maybe we can go back and be like, all right, maybe we can give Trey Young a little bit more slack to showing how everyone else compared with the Heat. So I think I need to like slow down, be like, this is just one series, let's see how the rest of the playoffs play out, and then I'll go back and see what happened each round or some of these players that, that left a little early. But I think people forget to do that sometimes. I think they forget. I think... They get hung up on an event as it happens, and then they forget, oh, this team ended up showing over the next two series, three series, seven playoff series, that they were an historically great defense, an historically great offense, whatever it is. Like, even just going back to Gobert, the first time I looked at Gobert uh, and did video analysis of him was a couple years ago, I think right after the lockdown in, in 2020, and you realize... It, they played the 2017 Warriors, the 2018 Rockets, and the 2019 Rockets. And as it's happening at the time, there's this very weird thing where you don't acknowledge because you haven't had the full perspective yet to see it. Oh, wow. The 2017 Warriors are probably literally the greatest offensive force ever assembled in the history of the sport of basketball. And then the 2018 and 2019 Rockets are elite high-level offenses. And so without that perspective, you, you can overreact to something as it's happening. So I, I agree. I think that's a great point to make where you want to you sort of make a note of what's happening, but you also want to see the opposing forces, whether it's an opposing offense or an opposing defense. Same thing with the Celtics and Kevin Durant and the Nets, right? Like, it's hard to completely contextualize what's the, what that means if the Celtics are going to go on to play two or three more series and have this defensive body of work in the postseason. And then you may look back and you may be like, well, actually, Durant, especially in games three and four, like passing more out of all the overloads and double teams and sitting in his driving lanes. Maybe the fact that they ended up with a 113 offensive rating, if you remove the, um, the garbage time minutes or whatever, 115 overall offensive rating, maybe that's actually the best offensive rating we see against the Celtics. Cody's wincing inside as I say that because the Celtics are about to play the Bucks. but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if it were. I would not be surprised if that were the highest offensive rating posted against the Celtics in the playoffs. Can I, can I talk some numbers about that Celtics-Nets matchup? No numbers are allowed on this podcast, <laughs> sir. You know that. <laughs> I've used it up already. I've used up our, our allowance for statistics so far. <laughs> All right, what do you, what do you got? Okay, so I was actually really interested by this because I, I don't know, maybe frantically trying to come up with some kind of take. I, I texted you earlier and I was like, hey, 
The Celtics had this great process, but if we look at how the Nets performed against them, like, comparatively to some other offensive teams in the playoffs so far, say, like, the Bulls, the Nets didn't look that bad. Like, their 115 offensive rating is pretty good, and if someone's hung 115 on you, uh, you're not going to be like, wow, what a great defense. They did such an excellent job. But this is an example of the process I was talking about. So I dove deeper into those numbers. I dived deeper into these numbers, and I compared the Nets with themselves in the regular season. I compared them to how other teams performed during the regular season. So a couple of numbers here. So uh, during the regular season, the Nets, they took 64% of the shots at either the rim or the three-point line. During the postseason, that dropped down to 57% of their shots were either the rim or the three-point line. Comparatively, the Suns had the lowest number during the regular season at 58%. Okay? Oh, wow. So, All right. So, so, the, so the Nets in that series, would have that number would have ranked 30th in the NBA in the regular season. It would rank 30th in the NBA of okay. rim attempts and three-point attempts. Okay. Okay. Their average two-point shot distance during the regular season, the Nets, was 7.6 feet. During that series against the Celtics, it was 10.1 feet. And that, Chicago led the league with the longest uh, average two-point distance with 8.1 feet in the regular whoa, season. Whoa, whoa, okay, okay. So so on this one, you're saying they would have been worst in the league by, by like orders of magnitude, by like a massive, massive outlier. Yes, on a bell curve, they would be way off on the right side, okay. way off on the right side. Uh, they're... And then here's here's where I think it started getting interesting for why their offensive rating looked solid. During the regular season, their short mid-range percentage, they shot about 45.5% from short mid-range. During the playoff against the Celtics, they shot 57.5% from short mid-range. The best regular season team was the Suns at 49%. Are, okay. you, su- are you suggesting that, that in a longer sample, Bruce Brown wouldn't hit 60% of his floaters? <laughs> Is that what you're suggesting? It's a hundred percent what I'm suggesting, and I think those are those are the most compelling numbers that I came at. So while the the end result, the offensive rating, was compelling in the sense where it's like, okay, maybe the Celtics defense was a little overrated. When you look at some of those granular numbers, you actually realize that wow, the Nets really were forced into taking some bad shots, and they made them at a ridiculously high rate. Their non-heave three-point percentage was forty-two percent during that series, Whoa. whereas the Heat led the league in the regular season at thirty-eight percent. Yeah, forty-two. I mean, forty-two percent three-point shooting um, is absolutely ridiculous. And I mean, when you this is this is the thing. I'm glad you brought this up because when you look at film for a while, and um, I think I can't remember who it was. Someone someone saw the breakdown I did from the first two games of how they were defending Durant and texted me and said the defense feels unfair. And to some, to some degree, that's how it feels watching it. I started to get really jazzed up just realizing like, okay, one, look at the bodies they have out there. Like the Celtics, you could make the argument that the Boston Celtics' seventh worst defender is Derek White. It's their seventh, <laughs> right? Seventh best, I guess. Sorry. Um, the Utah Jazz would, would kill to have Derek White on their team as far and away their second best defender in this postseason. So you see the personnel and then you see the scheme they're implementing and you understand, okay, this has something like there's something here. And then you watch them and they execute it to, I think they made like two mistakes on that scheme. I'm sure the coaching staff picked up more, but it's just so buttoned up when you watch them. And then you look at a number like this. And if you don't make any connections between the two, 
the temptation is to say, well, wait a second. The Nets had like the seventh best offensive rating in the first round. It's 115. But every filter you put on it, when you look at open shots or, you know, is it sustainable for them to shoot 42% from three or Bruce Brown hitting 60% of his floaters? I thought as the series went on, the Nets actually played their butts off. Um, I thought their effort was great. I thought a ton of guys, I mean, Kyrie Irving went bonkers on tough shots in game one. Um, And yet you can still look at it and say, okay, well, you move the garbage time. They're 113. That's way down from where they were in the regular season. Maybe the Nets are one of the better offenses the Celtics are going to play play in the playoffs because not only is it Kyrie and Durant and whatever with the big names, but remember, the Nets are putting out Seth Curry, and then at times they were like, okay, we're going to shelve another big man, and we're going to play four guards. And the whole idea of playing four guards is to try to bump your offense and hope you don't get burned on the other end. And of course they did because the Celtics offensive rating in the series was like 122, but that wasn't against a traditional lineup. So you've got the small sample of four games, but you have all this context as well that you can marry to the film. And that's why, even though this is how we started texting, Cody was like, it's weird. Their, their offensive rating was actually pretty good in the series. That's why I would suggest going forward, that might be the best offensive rating that anyone posts against the Celtics. Yeah, and I, I think my big overall point is, especially during the playoffs, you all might see people make these straw man arguments about statistics. Like, say someone take that offensive rating and be like, oh, we have some we have some nerds out there that are saying the, the Celtics actually don't have a good defense. Watch a game once in a while, you'll see their defense is incredible. Who, who's or this voice like, you're doing? Who, who is I, this? <laughs> I just, like, combined every possible analyst right now, and that's what I ended up with. So that's what we're rolling with. I think you see it with Jokic, too. People will be like, oh, his defensive metrics were incredible during the regular season. That's not what I saw in this series. It's like, yeah, okay, can we at least, like, dive into these numbers and figure out why this might be the case instead of being like this means that we should toss out all analytics stop watching i mean stop looking at stats and just watch the game so i think that's where i just landed on this you're really fired up today i am fired up yeah this is because you poked me with the the bucks thing earlier the poking there was no poking there was poking anyway what are there some other offensive players you wanted to talk about did you want to talk about anyone else that may have had a a rough looking first round um I don't, want, I don't want to spend too much time on it. I think we've circled the wagons. I mean, the only other guys that I would mention here, we, we talked about it in a video this week where the Bucks defense and um, your guy, Drew Holiday, uh, just fantastic at point of attack. DeMar DeRozan had a rough series. Of course, DeRozan has a history of having rough series in the postseason, and I think some of that is an inability to generate easy shots or generate free throws by creating an advantage. You go up against Drew Holiday, he takes away all those little tricks, and sure enough, um, for DeMar, the scoring numbers go down, and it's again led by a drop in free throws. Eight free throw attempts per 75 in the regular season, down to about five in that series. And it was the Bulls who had sub-100 offensive ratings with DeMar and Zach Levine on the floor in that series. Actually, the only other thought I have here, Cody, is it's interesting. Some of the other people who may be criticized from uh, John Morant, to Donovan Mitchell, to James Harden, players like that. I, I think statistically in the box score, and even from watching them, I don't really think they were in the same category of like, oh, they got completely taken away by a defense or something like that. Maybe it's a down series. Maybe there's some nuance you can get into. But their numbers ended up being pretty good. You know, with someone like Harden, he passed very well overall in the series. The Philadelphia offensive rating, especially after that last game six, um, you know, was very strong with him on the court. 
things like that. So I, I think we circled the wagons here. Um, of course, DeMar DeRozan, he's, he's, he's going to make all NBA, isn't he? Yeah. By the, uh, who, who, who made this? Who predicted this? Oh, okay. I wanted to, I wanted to remember to, to shout this out. It was, I think three people put this together, trying to give credit where credit is due. Um, someone named Crossfire or Crossfire. I am totally butchering that name. Dream Shake Max and Texas, Alaska, Montana. Um, <laughs> they, they did this very interesting thing. They sampled all of the public ballots from writers and they went around and they tried to collect them and say, hey, if we can get, you know, 30, 40, 50 ballot samples from people who are publishing their ballot, as long as they're giving the NBA the same ballot they publish on their media platform, we can kind of figure out who's going to win awards. They've been perfect predicting awards so far. And so it's worth saying that like coach of the year is probably going to be Monty Williams. Six man of the year is probably going to be Tyler Hero. MVP is going to be uh, Nikola Jokic. And then what, what landed on us on this um, is the all NBA teams where it looks like DeMar DeRozan is going to be a second team forward along with Kevin Durant. Joel Embiid will also be on that second team. Steph Curry. Did I say John Morant? He's a guard. He's not a forward. Um, John Morant and Steph Curry are guards. Kevin Durant and DeMar DeRozan are forwards. Joel Embiid on the second team. And then first team All-NBA, that leaves Luka, Booker, Giannis, Tatum, and Jokic as the first team All-NBA. And your guy, Trey Young, uh, third team All-NBA guard. Chris Paul looks like he's going to be the other third team All-NBA guard. Gobert not going to make third team All-NBA center. That's going to be Carl Anthony Towns, it looks like. And then at the forward, the last one that caught my eye, LeBron James is going to get third team All-NBA forward, it looks like. And then Pascal Siakam, another one of these stories of someone who's not going to make the All-Star team and then make the All-NBA team at the end of the season. So I I don't know how deep of a conversation you want on this, but again, I think it would be really nice to have a definition for All-NBA before we, we wade into these waters. Oh, each person has their own definition. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cody, you want to talk about it. I know you do. Cody, I think, wants to pick the Bucks in three to win this series. <laughs> Is the, am, I, am I getting it about right? Is that how you're feeling? Are you feeling that good about it? That, okay, so it's your question that I feel really confident that the Bucks are going to beat the Celtics in this round. Um, I don't know. I feel like you can, you're going to say no if I ask you that. Can, can we just start by talking a little bit about the process? Because I think, based on you, 
based on some other thinking basketball members and the numbers they're throwing out, it sounds like people are uh, pretty high on the Celtics in this uh, in this round. Can you speak for all of them? And tell me, why do you think, why are you so high on the Celtics right now? Well, one of the reasons is that Chris Middleton is not going to play in the series. And this somehow doesn't seem to phase you, which is why, you know, I just want to remind listeners that you are broadcasting from the Milwaukee Bucks headquarters right now as, as we talk to you. Um, that actually made me think of something I saw. I'm always interested in seeing how groups of people think about or forecast stuff that they have expertise on, in this case, picking the series. So ESPN, their writers publish, I think it's 20 basketball writers that get to pick each round. And there's only one series, Cody, in the conference semifinals this year that ESPN had two different, at least two different picks. Every other series, one team got all the picks. So all 20 took the Warriors, all 20, all 20 took the Heat. All 20 took the Suns, and 14 of the 20 picked the Celtics over the Bucks. This Celtics-Bucks series is the only series that, that has uh, you know, diversity versus groupthink in, in the forecasting. That's interesting. I don't, I don't know if I agree with the, uh, with the consensus on all of the other It makes rounds. me nervous. I, I, I think some series you expect a consensus, like... I think of a series like looks like 95% on paper or something. One versus eight, great team versus weak team. I get it. I get having a consensus. But it always fascinates me that within some voting body, um, let's just take the Suns and the Mavs. I think that's a good series to talk about. Because I, I, when we talked about it in the, in the group chat this week, I was talking about it as a coin flip series. And... You know, we can get into all of the elements of Dallas and why I think they have a better shot. And Luka Don- I'm fascinated by the Mikhail Luka Doncic matchup. And look, the Suns are a machine. The Suns may just do their thing and take care of business in like, I, I, I think this is going to be a long series. I don't know. I was going to say five games, but let's say they take care of it in six games. Um, that could happen. But man, not a single person picked Dallas. Yeah, I I don't think that makes sense to me, especially if you like people that pick these series love generational superstars and the Mavericks have a generational superstar that has shown nothing but strong evidence that he's a very strong playoff performer. And this time around, he's surrounded by some other creators, which he's never really had before. And they have a strong defensive team like, I don't know, I think after and I know Booker was out for a couple of those games, but after seeing what a 36 win Pelicans like push the Suns into six games, and it's not like that sixth game was like it required Chris Paul to literally have like a over one hundred percent true shooting performance <laughs> to knock them out. What a game! It that was that was just excellent. But that doesn't make me very confident. If I'm a Suns fan. Yeah, I, that's kind of how I feel. Um, and I and I don't know if you wanted to talk about this more. It plugs back into what we were talking about earlier: the process of evaluating these things. I take a lot from the first round of the playoffs, especially this season. It doesn't mean that I ignore everything in the regular season, but I thought looking at where the Pelicans were in the last few months of the year, the play-in games, and then coming into the series, and looking at, let's just say the Suns' win total, um, you would not expect that series to go that way. 
So it was a bit concerning. I think the you know the Suns had such a great clutch season, so we know their win total uh, has outperformed things like their point differential or some of their other indicators. But we also had, I can't remember if we talked about this, we had someone put together uh, playoff rotations and t- trying to take the top minute players on teams stack up the top seven or eight minute players or whatever and say, these are the guys that are in the playoffs. Let's look at actually how those guys performed and try to eliminate all the bench players. And, and we actually talked about this. I think it was offline. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The Suns looked like the sixth best team in the NBA using that methodology. Now, the flip side is when you look at the samples of these lineups where they're only on the floor with playoff rotation guys. So for the Celtics, that would be any of their top seven or eight guys on the court. So you could have a lineup with Derek White and Rob Williams and Grant Williams. Grant Williams could be on the bench and you could bring Tatum in. You could have Jalen Brown in or Marcus Smart. You just need to have the playoff rotation guys. The thing that jumped out about the Suns is 4,600 minutes of their regular season were considered playoff rotation guys, where a lot of the teams ahead of them or around them, like the Mavs, the Warriors, the Celtics, the Bucks, they were in like the 2000s. Hmm. So, so the Suns consistently put guys on the floor in the regular season. When you get to the playoffs, is that an indicator that they outperformed you know, themselves or their expectation in the regular season? I don't know. That's what I'm concerned about heading into this series. I think, yeah, that's a good way to look at it, but also like... Man, I don't even know if that's a good point, but I feel like a lot of teams weren't able to play their top guys because of injuries and whatnot, but that would still factor into it. So, yeah, I don't know. That's fascinating. I don't. Rem- I actually don't remember this conversation. So this is me live hearing this right now. Yeah, that's good. We're here for your. You're here. We're here for your fresh, honest <laughs> surprise. Um, so anyway, you know, I don't. I don't know if you want to say other things about that series. I think it's a fascinating series. I think it's going to yep. be a dogfight. But that kind of blew me away. That like not even a single person picked the Mavs in that series. And then you had three series with just complete unanimity groupthink. I think the Miami series with Embiid being out kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that really disappoints me because I think that was going to be a really fun, fascinating series in terms of like just seeing Embiid being able to go up against a defense like that. But now after seeing Miami load up on Trey, like they did, like I think Harden's able to figure things out. Uh, more than Trey, just because of his experience. It's probably a better offensive player overall. Maybe not this regular season, but uh, I don't know. That just bodes really, really poorly for, for the 76ers. We were, we were going to do an hour and a half just on Philadelphia and Miami and all the X's <laughs> and O's breakdowns and you know how they were going to shrink the passing lanes on James Harden. And, and, and now all the air has been let out of the balloon. Um, Warriors, Grizzlies, really quickly... It's kind of the opposite of what the Grizzlies faced with Minnesota. I thought the sort of experience, uh, psychological resiliency, maturity, that would be the difference in the series. Even though the Grizzlies are young, they've, they kind of went through a little war last year. They've gone through stuff this year, and they've shown the capacity to do what they did in the series, which is just put together crazy runs and just play like they're kids who don't understand the moment. Whereas the Timberwolves constantly have a history of kind of falling apart or discombobulating in those moments. That kind of was, you know, at least a huge factor in that series. And going forward, I think it's the opposite where I trust the Warriors who have been around the block um, because Memphis, it's a totally different matchup. I, I would not be surprised if this series looks totally different. I wouldn't be surprised if the Warriors look great, but 
it's a totally different matchup. And therefore, you might actually see that being a factor in the series where it's like, whoa, this is very competitive. This is much closer than the last series. But at the end of the day, Memphis is still young. Um, they're still, they still kind of have that like 1993 Seattle Supersonics vibe to me. And the Warriors, they're, they just know how to make plays at the end of games. Yeah, it felt like watching through a lot of that Wolves-Grizzly series, there were just a lot of mistakes on both ends. Like, I, I think about the uh, the game-winning jaw layup, like with Anthony Edwards really selling out to try and get yep. that steal. Like, that's not going to happen against the Warriors. Or if you say the last three minutes of Game 6 between the Wolves and the and the Grizzlies, there was like a two-minute stretch where both teams were just kind of like maybe going to hero ball, maybe not really know what they were doing. I think there were like two straight possessions with the Grizzlies where I was like, they didn't, the ball didn't cross the three-point line, and there was only, like, one pass in this possession. Like, they only have, like, a four-point lead. I don't know why they're holding it and not trying to do something with this. So there's just a couple of moments where I'm like, they almost need to execute perfectly their game plan to have a chance against this Warriors team that's just, you know, I'm, I'm not saying they're going into it relaxed, but, like, they've been there. They've they've seen some stuff in the last few years, and the Grizzlies are still getting their feet underneath them. So um, I, I think the, the Warriors have a pretty solid, in my opinion, I think the Warriors have a pretty solid uh, gap between them talent-wise. Yeah. So let's find let's let's wrap up today because they've I think they've actually tipped this game, so we have to go watch it. And again, it, it's going to be so funny because you're going to be able to have the results of this game probably by the time you listen to this podcast. The Bucks and the Celtics, um, I think, I mean, it. what if Drew Holiday got injured? Would you still pick the Bucks here? With <laughs> what, what level of confidence do you have in this team? Okay, Ben. Here, <laughs> here. I want to give you the stage for a minute. Here's the thing, Ben. Here's the thing. I get it. I know a bunch of you might be like, you know, you go out there and you're like, I am this stoic NBA analyst, analysis, and analyst. Wow, I've I've lost my mind right now. This I'm is delirious. what the Bucks do to Cody, this ladies is and gentlemen. Thing. This is this happening. is the thing. You might be like, why why would you have why would you be a fan of a team when it clouds your analysis? Aren't you just trying to have the best unbiased analysis popular? And I get it. It's like it's a compelling argument. And when your team does poorly, it makes you feel terrible. It's not fun. But let me tell you, I I I unearthed unearthed a video. <laughs> That my wife took of me last year, 40 seconds before the Bucks won the championship. And my pure delirious joy almost, almost brought me to tears watching it again and thinking about how exciting that moment was. And that moment made me think, this is all worth it. I don't care if I get something wrong once in a while, because being so excited and elated about a bunch of people you never knowing, having some kind of success is just beyond anything I can describe. So let me tell you what, Ben. I'm going to be unbiased here. I'm going to uh, also tie in my fandom. And let's just say you can read between the lines and say that I will not publicly pick one of these teams. I will not publicly pick it, but I will be cheering for the Bucks. I, I would um, just like to confirm I've seen this video, and it is one of the six or seven greatest videos <laughs> ever made by a human. Cody does not know he's being filmed. And his wife is just, can I tell the people that you were hunched over on a <laughs> table with a series of pillows set up to, to support your emotional weight? And then as you realize the Bucks are going to win the championship, I think what needs to be the rallying cry for this podcast going forward, uh, Cody receives a phone call live while he's being filmed and picks up the phone and all the man can say, all he can muster up in his soul, his basketball sports fandom soul is to go... Kurt, 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 
So yes. he missed. He missed. That's right. He missed. Yes, Curdy missed. Curdy missed. missed. Needs to be the rallying cry. Um, I think in short, and then we can get out of here. We're having too much fun with Cody today. I, I think that the loss of Middleton as another option in this offense, both in terms of the ability to play isolation that we've talked about, some of those bailout things later in the possession and earlier in the possession upstream where they like to use Giannis as a role man, little pitches, handoffs in the middle of the court, um, Middleton as a passer, Middleton as a shooter. I think that's huge because this gets back to the process. It gets back to the theme of this episode in a sense. When you watch the Bucks play the Bulls, Grayson Allen and Bobby Portis, and even Pat Connaughton, they're going to look different than when they play this Celtics defense. That's what I can't get out of my head. And I think I think they need to play well, especially with Chris Middleton out, for the Bucks to win the series on both ends. And it's just like, you put him in the cauldron, you turn up the heat, it suddenly becomes harder for those guys. And the, and the flip side, of course, is, well, maybe the Celtics have a scheme that they send three at Giannis and build walls and those guys have to make shots. Um, okay, but then is it the same thing we just saw with the Nets where it's like Giannis goes away. So they just don't have to make shots. They have to have like 25 and 30 point games and get used to shouldering the load at big moments. That's that's what I'm concerned about. Drew Holiday, we've talked about how it's probably his best offensive season, at least in the regular season. But I'm concerned in this series that he's got to shoulder a huge defensive load. And we've seen in the past when he shoulders a huge defensive load, um, it's no slight against Drew. He, you know, there's only very few Michael Jordan motors out there. Kevin Garnett, maniacal motors. It takes away from his offense. Even the series against Chicago, he did not have a very good offensive series relative to his regular season standard. So um, we will put Cody out of his misery and, and leave it at that. <laughs> Any any final thoughts before we get out of here? I am psyched for the second round. I thought the first round was fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Chris, we talked about it last week, I think, with the Bulls, where it kind of simplified what the Bucks were doing. Uh, but when you get to stronger defenses, you need a guy like Chris Middleton that's going to be able to make and take tough shots. And, you know, cheering for the Bucks, but I will say that the Boston Celtics are the best-looking team I've seen in the playoffs so far. Well, I'm cheering for you, Cody, just to... Thank to you. make it through this. Um, Thank you. If, if you want to support this channel and and Cody's emotional plight at coming off a championship, uh, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have additional content. We have that Discord community that he mentioned. Lots of lively discussion and great thoughts coming out of there all the time. Um, we've got our playoff proprietary stats leaderboard. That's where we pulled a lot of the data we talked about today. Hopefully we didn't go over our, our data quota on this episode, uh, <laughs> patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Thanks as always for listening to this one. Hope you enjoyed the first round of the playoffs and that the second round of the playoffs will be just as good. And of course, wherever you are listening, I hope you are having a great day.